I'll be reading from Luke 2, 21 to 33. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens a womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church family. I've been holding off saying it, but you're going to get it the next few Sundays. Merry Christmas. As we saw last week, our church, you can't decorate before Thanksgiving. That was what came out of the survey last week. But we are fully now uh, in the Advent season as a church. You can see that the decorations have been put up. This past week, we had our women's Christmas dessert, and it was just a wonderful time. Thank you to everybody who uh, made that happen. We had 135 women come and participate. Immediately the day after that, the men got together. We had our men's breakfast in the morning. There were over 60 guys that were here yesterday. On Wednesday night, we had the dinner and worship was here in the worship center for our middle schoolers and high schoolers. Monday, we had Awana, and so... It's a beautiful thing to see this church family in all ages learning and growing uh, in the Lord. Now, as I said, we are in the Advent season, and uh, right before Tony came up, I said, you're not going to tell them, you know, what Advent means and everything like that, are you? And he said, I was going to. I said, well, don't. So good job, Tony, for not uh, saying anything just yet, but who, who knows what the word Advent means? Oh, yeah. Wow. See, like the kids answered the questions. Or can you guys answer the question? Does anybody want to take a guess? It's not a trick question if you know. All right. Advent comes from the Latin word advanticus, which just simply means coming. Coming. And it makes sense that in the Christmas season, we call it the Advent season because it's during this time of year that we celebrate the coming of... Jesus Christ the Lord, right? Like this is the time of year where we focus in on Christ's first coming as a child born to humble parents. Now, the truth is, we've been actually celebrating Christ's coming as a church for a little while. Uh, We actually started all the way back in September as we've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke. In fact, if you have your Bibles, I hope you would open them right now to the Gospel of Luke. You could 
hear from our scripture reading today that we're in Luke chapter 2. We're walking through the life of Christ. And, and you know, I was thinking this morning, as it is the Advent season, and Advent means coming, that, you know, um, it really depends on what someone's coming is going to result in, depending upon whether it's a coming to be celebrated, remembered, uh, ignored, or to be feared. Like, why is it that we celebrate the coming of, of Jesus Christ? Uh, you know exactly what I mean by whether or not someone's coming is to be feared, ignored, celebrated, or remembered. If you grew up in a family like mine, where you had your mother at times come to you and say, your dad's coming home, right? <laughs> now, the inflection in her voice dictates whether or not the coming of my father back home was something to be remembered, celebrated, ignored, you know, or feared, right? If my mom said, your dad's coming home, I knew that I had done something in that day, right? And so I knew that when my dad got home, I was going to get disciplined. If my dad was gone for the week and he was coming back from a trip, my mom said, hey, today your dad's coming home. Then you'd be excited. I've missed my dad. I, I haven't seen him. Sometimes he would just be coming home from a regular day of work. Hey, your dad's going to be coming home. And I'm like, it doesn't matter to me. I'm going to a friend's house tonight. Okay, great. You know, like depending upon what the person's presence is going to mean for you depends on whether or not am I going to celebrate this coming? Am I going to fear this coming? Am I going to ignore it? And the reason why we as a church, and not just Valley Center Community Church, but literally the church all around the world, celebrates the coming of Jesus Christ is because we know what it truly means. And today, we're going to go deeper into our understanding of Christ's coming as we look at this story of Jesus while still in his infancy. And so let's, let me just catch us all up with where we're at as we've been going through Luke's gospel and he's telling us about the life of Christ, he starts really early. In fact, he starts talking about Jesus coming even before Jesus is born. If you were to look at a, at a timeline of Jesus' birth, you'd see something like this. The very first thing that we have is the angel Gabriel appears to a man named Zechariah to announce the birth of John. You heard Pastor Tony actually reference the significance of John because in Malachi's prophecy, he said that one is going to come to prepare the way for the Lord's coming and that one is none other than Zechariah's son, John. Well, then six months later, this same angel Gabriel appears to Mary and announces to her the birth of Jesus, that she is going to be the one who gives birth not to the forerunner of the Messiah, but actually to the Messiah himself. And immediately after she finds out she goes and she visits her relative Elizabeth, who's the wife of Zechariah, who at this point is, is six months pregnant. And the reason why she goes to Elizabeth is because the angel Gabriel said, Mary, you're going to give birth to the Son of God. And as a, as a sign to you that this is, this is true, look at your relative Elizabeth. She is old and yet she's pregnant. And so she goes and she stays with Elizabeth. And the text tells us that she stays there until John is born. She's there for three months. And then three months after that, she then goes with Joseph to Bethlehem. And it's there in Bethlehem as we've been reading in Luke's gospel, that Jesus is finally born. And, 
And when he is born, at least at his birth, nothing supernatural really takes place. But that same night, there's shepherds in the field. They're watching the flock. And they get to see this angelic vision that comes and says to them, in the city of David, your Savior is born. And so they rush into Bethlehem. And they see Joseph and Mary. And they see Jesus, the baby. And they, and they celebrate Jesus coming because the angel says, this is why it's so significant that Jesus has come into the world because he is the Savior of all. And so they leave Mary and Joseph and, they, and they're celebrating and, and they're worshiping him. And then what happens after that is eight days later, this is what we saw in our text last week. Mary and Joseph, they've stayed in Bethlehem and they make that journey four to five miles from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. Or I should say, I'm going to have myself. Eight days later, they have Jesus circumcised, most likely there in Bethlehem. And he's circumcised by his father. And we talked last week about why is that so significant that Jesus is circumcised. Because we said circumcision is the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. The sign of the covenant that was placed on every Jewish male that said one day from the seed of the man is going to come forth the deliverer. And so Jesus takes that sign upon himself. And if you weren't here last week, <clears throat> we talked about the significance of Jesus' circumcision. That God the maker of heaven and earth in humility would not simply come as a baby, but that he would allow someone to perform the act of circumcision on him as an infant to be able to identify with his people. And he had to do that because the law required it of him. And, and Jesus wanted to be the perfect obedient son because if he wasn't the perfect obedient son that he could not give to us his righteous record and so he does this for you and me. And uh, I just need to stop here for a moment. Some people asked, you know, uh, after the service, they, they said, wait a sec, um, so is circumcision still something that's required today? Like if I'm going to be an obedient Christian, do I need to, to be circumcised? Well, let me say two things. One, um, just kind of a shameless plug, one of the things that Jason and I do every Monday is we do a little podcast that's kind of a recap of, of today. Sunday's messages, and, and so last week in the podcast, we talked more about circumcision, but here's the beautiful thing, because Jesus Christ fulfilled the law of God perfectly for you and for me, circumcision is something that's no longer required. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, the first believers got together in Jerusalem, and the question was asked, if I'm going to be an obedient follower of Jesus, do I need to be circumcised? And they took the time and the effort to say no. Jesus Christ fulfilled all the righteousness of the law, all the ceremonial, the ritual fulfillment of the law, so we don't have to do that. But Jesus did it for you and for me. It was a sign of his humility, of his identification with us. And then, as you see there up on the screen, 32 days after his circumcision, Jesus was presented in the temple. This was required again by Jewish law for the mother and for the firstborn son that a sacrifice would have to be made after the period of a woman's uncleanliness for having given birth. You had to go to the temple to make a sacrifice. And so Mary and Joseph, in obedience to the law, they go to the temple. They make the sacrifice for Mary. They also make a sacrifice for Jesus. You know why they make a sacrifice for Jesus, even though he's a perfect, sinless son of God? It's because God's law required that the firstborn of, of every man and woman in Israel was dedicated to the Lord, belonged to God. And so you as a parent would make a, a sacrifice to God, recognizing that while this child belongs to you, you're sacrificing someone else in its place. And so Mary and Joseph, they do this. They go to the temple. Now where we're at today in our story is something else happens while they're there in the temple. 
something else significant happens. Now, some of you are wondering, where in this timeline do the wise men fit in? And some of you are like, I didn't even think about the wise men. Well, good for you. Come December 17th and you're going to find out, okay? December 17th, two Sundays from now. But while they're there in the temple, something else happens. And that's what we see in our text here this morning. Now, full disclosure, church family, full, full disclosure. As I was going through my notes this week, you know, originally this message was supposed to be one message. Last week, I was supposed to cover all of these scriptures. And then I realized I can't do it in one message. And this morning, I was praying and reading over my notes. And I was going to finish this text this morning. And I realized, guess what? I can't do this in one message. So I'm breaking it up into two. So if you're taking notes and you're going to get crazy, we're only going to cover the first half of your notes this morning, okay? All right, so just put the rest at, at, because some of you are going to be like, how's he going to cover the rest of it? I'm not, okay? So we're just doing the first half today, but we're going to tie it all, tie it all in. But let's go back to this, this text. The text begins with these words. Here we are in Luke chapter 2, starting verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. What we're going to see in the text, both this week and next week, is when Mary and Joseph are there in the temple making their sacrifices, they have a counter with two individuals. Two individuals who are going to serve a very important role because both of them are going to be giving testimony about Jesus Christ. And the first one that we come across today in the text, the first testifier is this man, Simeon. Simeon is the first testifier that is mentioned here in our text. So if you're taking notes at the very top there, there's gonna be two testifiers. The first one is Simeon, and the next one come next week. You'll find out about that one. But as we encounter these two testifiers in the text, why we're going to slow down and we're going to break this up into two messages is that as we look at their encounter with this one man, Simeon, what's going to be revealed to us is a number of things about Simeon, things that are really, really significant, things that are important for us to know. But, but what is so beautiful to me about this is that every story and, and page in God's Word, as Pastor Tony just told the kids, it's not about the people in the stories, every single story, every single person, everything that's told about them is ultimately instructive for us and points us to to God, who he is and what he does for us. And so when we come to our text this morning, we're encountering this man named Simeon and there are some really profound things that are said about this testifier named Simeon. The first thing I want us to see is that he is called righteous. Do you see that there in the text? Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous. Now, what strikes me about Simeon is that this is the only place in the entire scripture where he is mentioned. But church family, the things that we learn about him, the things that are said about him, I'm here to say if my name was only mentioned once in all of scripture, if there's only one story about me, if you will, these are some things that I would want to be said. And the first thing that's said about him is that he was righteous. Now, when we come across the word righteous and we hear somebody described in God's word as being righteous, you have to ask yourself, what does that really mean? What does it mean for somebody to be righteous? You typically refer to it in like theological terms as we see here in the text. Somebody's called righteous. But on its, on its face, by its very definition, when you say that someone is righteous, what you're saying is that they are right 
according to some standard. If someone is righteous, that means that they have met some standard, some criteria. And when we look at the text this morning, it's said here that Simeon is considered righteous before God. Now, the idea of needing to meet a certain standard and failure to meeting it being somewhat of a significant thing, we, we know this all the time. We just don't use the word righteous. In order to qualify for the Olympics in swimming and running in any event, you have to go through a series of trials. But in order to even make it into those trials, you have to previously have met the requirement for whatever event you are performing in, whether it's running the mile in a certain time or 100 meters in a certain time or throwing a javelin a certain distance. Like we understand that, that there are standards that exist in the world and being able to meet those standards gives us access to things that we otherwise wouldn't have opportunities to access. If you have children who are going into college, you understand that colleges have certain admission standards and that you have to be right according to their standards to even apply or to get accepted into these places. And so when the text comes to us and it says that Simeon was righteous before God, do you actually know what that's saying? It's saying that he was in right standing with God, that he had met God's standard. He had access to God. Now, some of you are like, okay, so, great, good, good job, Simeon. But, you, but, but if you understand the scriptures and you understand the human condition, this is, a, this is a huge thing to be said because how can anyone be acceptable to God when we know the true condition of every single human being? If you're taking notes, you should have marked in your Bibles Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What's Isaiah saying? We fail to meet God's standard. We have turned away from God. In Romans 3, 10 through 12, it says, None is righteous. Wait a second. See, God's word contradicts itself. It just said that Simeon was righteous, but now we have a portion of God's word where it says none is righteous. Romans 3.10 says this, none is righteous, no, not one, just in case you were wondering if there's an exception. No one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Church, which one is it? Is Simeon righteous or are there none righteous? What's going on here? And by the way, failure to meet God's standard is a little bit different than not getting into the Olympics or getting into the college that you want. You see, for the wages of sin is what? It's death. Death and hell are what is secured by you and me for our unrighteousness, our failure to meet God's standard. And then the psalmist puts a little more salt on the wound when he says in Psalm 51, 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Church, unrighteousness is a real problem. So how was Simeon righteous? 
How could anyone ever meet God's standard if we've all sinned? How could anyone meet God's standard if we've all turned away? How can any of us, if we're born in sin and if our mothers are, are sinners, how can we do this? Oh, I know the answer. It's through obedience to the law of God. If I just do everything that God's law requires, that's his standard, right? Perfect obedience, so I'll just perfectly obey. So maybe that's it for Simeon. Maybe Simeon was righteous because he perfectly obeyed God's law. How many of you ever tried to spend 24 hours doing everything that God's word requires of you? Only one time in my 21 years of ministry have I ever met someone who said that they had done that. And that was because I truly believe that they were mentally ill. Because I, I, uh, I, I looked at it and said, you, that's an impossibility. I've seen you sin and break God's standard at least three times in our discussion, right? So what's happening here? Do you, do you see why I'm slowing down just a little bit? See, how would you answer the question to your child? How would you answer the question to your neighbor? How would you answer the question to your own heart and mind? How can anyone be considered righteous and to have met God's standard. Well, I said, well, maybe it's through perfect obedience. Galatians 3.11 says this. Now it is evident that no one is justified. Do you know what the word justified means? To be declared right. So no one is declared right before God by the law. So there you have it. No one can obey perfectly. No one's perfect obedience because no one can obey perfectly. But instead, Galatians gives the hope. The Galatians gives us a little window into what the rest of the Bible proclaims. How Simeon could be called righteous and how any single one of us could be considered righteous and not under God's judgment and wrath, but accepted by him and welcomed by him. Because it says this, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by, guess what? Faith. Faith. It's, and so what is that faith? Is it just a generic faith? Is it just a, a belief in any old thing? No. The scriptures get even more specific. It goes all the way back to Abraham. Jesus, speaking of Abraham, said this in John 8, 56. For your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. All the way back in the Old Testament, Abraham, who was considered, as we saw earlier, righteous by God, was considered that because he had faith. Faith in what? Faith in himself? No, he had faith that he would see the promised day, that one day God would send forth a deliverer who would be the righteous one for you and for me. Someone who would meet God's perfect standard and do the work necessary to forgive us for failing to meet that standard. That's why Galatians says that the righteous shall live by faith. It's not faith in what we will do. It's faith in what God has done. In fact, in Galatians 3, 6 through 9, it says this. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as, guess what? Righteousness. That's where the righteousness comes from. The ability to meet God's standard is not through what we do, but it's our faith in the one who met the standard for us. Know then, it goes on to say, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So just as Abraham was righteous, those who look forward to God's fulfillment of his prophecies. prophecies. And verse 8 says, in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. So not just Jews, but also Gentiles. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of 
faith. Romans would say, Paul would write, for, it, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as written, the righteous shall live by faith. You see, as we're going to learn about Simeon, he had faith in the promise of God that God would send forth his redeemer, the one who would rescue him. And, and you might ask yourself the question, so where does that faith come from? How can any single person have that kind of a faith when we're sinners? Paul gives the answer in Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through what? Faith, and this not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So there's no works. There's no works that I do. There's no works that, that you do. Simeon was declared right before God, was considered righteous because he had this forward-looking faith. Listen, God never had two plans of salvation. God never had three plans of salvation. God never had four plans of salvation. I said this about five weeks ago, but I wanted to hit it again today because I don't want us as a church to ever forget it. Before Jesus Christ, you were right with God through a forward-looking faith. That's how Simeon was able to be considered righteous because he looked forward to the fulfillment of God's promises. For us, you and I, we're now right with God because we have a backward-looking faith. Are you tracking with me? This is the way that God has worked. One plan of salvation, always coming to humanity through a redeemer whose name was Jesus, who would perfectly fulfill the law for you and who would die as a perfect sacrifice for your sins. So not only are you forgiven, but you're made righteous. And the saints of the Old Testament looked forward to God fulfilling his promise through that redeemer. We know exactly who that redeemer was. And so our faith is a backwards looking faith. Same way. They weren't saved differently in the Old Testament than we were and we're not saved differently than they are. All who are saved, all who are righteous, are righteous through Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen to that? Do you understand and do you see all those sacrifices of the Old Testament, the circumcision that Jesus endured, the circumcision that his parents made, all of that was to remind the people of a need for a savior. Those things were never intended to save. All the sacrifices, all that they did was to point them forward to God's redemption coming through the redeemer. And so the people of God, they were reminded through those sacrifices, even through the act of circumcision, just how wicked they were and how they needed to be redeemed, and how righteousness had to come from outside of them. You know, sometimes I think that, <laughs> that they had a little bit better than us. And I don't really mean that. What I mean by that is the Jewish people were reminded all the time that they needed a righteousness to come from outside of themselves because they couldn't fulfill the law. Today, though, we have a reminder, but it's not in the sacrifices. The reminder that comes to us today the reminder that we have that the sacrifice has come is every Sunday when we take communion. That's what God has given to us as his people. Do this in what? Remembrance of me. Remembrance that you are made righteous and holy through what I have done for you. This uh, past week, I had a really interesting conversation with a gentleman. I won't get into all the details of it. doesn't attend the church. Wanted to talk and meet with the pastor. We had a really good conversation. He had some things he wanted to share with me. And after he had shared those things, I was like, I, can I share some things with you? And, and in his conversation, he had referenced some things in our world that he identified as, as morally wrong. 
He, had, he said there are some things in our world that are morally wrong. He said that they are cruel. He said that they're, they're evil. And I listened to this man and I said, I said, you know, after everything you shared, I said, I wonder, I said, can I just ask you a question? I said, what's your understanding of, of God? Do you believe there's a, a God? And, and he said, he says, well, I think that there are mysteries beyond the human mind. And I said, okay, all right, we'll go there. Uh, mysteries beyond the human mind. I said, you know, you mentioned some things earlier. You said that there are things in our world that are cruel, things that are immoral, things that are, that are evil. I asked him, I said, on what basis, though, do you call things cruel, moral, or evil? I said, how do you think about that? I said, I know why I call things cruel, immoral, and evil. I said, but if there's no God, if there's no ultimate standard, then, then, then how do we evaluate those things? Why does anybody need to be saved? Why should we not do certain things and do other things? And when we were done with the conversation, he said, I, I, you gave me something to think about. I said, good, think about it. <laughs> Consider it. Listen, we know that there is a standard in the world that none of us measures up to it, but praise the Lord that Jesus Christ came so that men like Simeon could have this forward-looking faith and we today could have a backward-looking faith and be counted as righteous. Praise the Lord for that, amen? But that's not the only thing that it says about Simeon. See, see, I'm focusing on these little words because it brings us into the deeper theology of our relationship with God. Simeon just simply serves in many ways as stand-in for us. If you want to understand your relationship with God and who you are in him and what he does for you, you look at how Simeon is described here. It says that he was not only righteous, but look at what it says. And this man was righteous and what? Devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was devout. He was righteous and he was devout. Those aren't the same things. Those are two different things. But they are things that are consistent with what God says is true of people who are righteous. If you are made righteous through Jesus Christ, if you have fulfilled God's standard through his son, righteous people actually live out their righteousness. Can I get an amen to that? See, we don't, we don't do things in order to be righteous and accepted by God. We, we walk in righteousness because that's who we are. Simeon was righteous and devout. That word there for devout is a word that in the, in the Greek, in the classic Greek, literally means he was cautious. Cautious to do what? Specifically, he was cautious to obey and believe God's word. That's what it talks about when it says that this man was devout. When you think about Simeon, he obeyed, he was obedient to, and he believed God's word. This is how he's being described. And why was he obedient to and believed God's word? Because he had faith in the promises of God. He knew what God would one day do for him. And so what we see here is a description of both sanctification and justification. Righteous, he's justified. Sanctification, he's devout. He's living out the promises of God for him. And I love what it says here. Look at how it says, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That word consolation is a word that means comfort or encouragement or, or solace. Simeon, this man who was devout, was looking forward to God's fulfillment of his promises. He so believed in who God was that he understood that if I'm, if I'm connected to God as my father, I want to walk in obedience to his, his ways. You know, I've been hitting on this the last few weeks, and I've been doing it because it's been all over the text. You know, James 2.17 says this, 
So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Yeah, all right, men and women in the Bible study. You should know that. You've been studying James, right? Let me say it again. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? It's dead. It's dead. If you are righteous before God, if you've put your faith and trust in his promises, I go back to what we saw in the book of Ephesians. If you remember Ephesians 5.1, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. It's because you are beloved. It's because you have been changed from the inside out that now you and I are people who look to walk in obedience. We don't walk in obedience to earn God's favor, but it's because of who you are. And Simeon is a picture of what it looks like. He was righteous and he was devout. In Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, there's, we looked at this when we went through Ephesians. It says, no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Your minds have been changed. You've been redeemed. You've been restored. And so now we walk as these obedient sons and these obedient daughters. In Titus 2, 11 through 14, it says, for the grace of God has appeared. It's, it's brought about our salvation, but it's brought about a change in us. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. One of the clearest indications that the scriptures give for someone who has been made righteous through Jesus Christ is that they are in pursuit of and desirous to live out that righteousness. If someone comes and says, I believe in Jesus Christ, he is my Lord and Savior, but there is no movement towards, no desire towards, no conviction of sin, no looking to change, then the scriptures say you should question your faith. In fact, Paul would write to the church in Corinth, a church that he would call the believers their saints, but then he would go through the litany of all the ways that they were failing to live out the righteousness that they had. And towards the end of 2 Corinthians, he would say, you need to examine yourselves to see if you're actually in the faith. Because when the righteousness of Christ comes upon us, it changes us and it moves us so that we would walk in obedience. Why does God give us these descriptions of these people? Why does he talk about Simeon in this way? Is it for you and me to look at him and say, look at how great and good they are. I hope I can be like Simeon one day. Nope. <laughs> he gives us these descriptions because it shows us how good and great our God is, what he can do in a life like Simeon, and what he did in a life like Simeon, he has done already inside every single one of us who've put our faith and trust in him. Praise God. Praise God for that. Amen. What is being said of Simeon can be said of us. Now, I got a question. Do you see how this connects to your life today? As I was going through my notes, if, if you have been given this righteousness, if this is who you are, and, and we're seeing Simeon described as a man who is righteous and devout, when you look at your own life, I just ask the question, is there in your heart and mind, like, Merry Christmas here, but I gotta be, I gotta be your pastor, and I gotta, I gotta challenge us and say, like, do you really believe, number one, that you have been made righteous? Do you believe that you are holy? Number two, does your life reflect the righteousness that Jesus Christ purchased through his perfect, painful life on this earth and even more painful and horrendous death on the cross? Because he did all that to make you new. If anyone is in Christ, he will one day be a new creation. Is that what the text says? No, the text says if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, present tense, 
moving forward. I love that I get to be a new creation. I love that when I fail today to walk in obedience, that doesn't mean that the next moment I can't walk in obedience. <laughs> that when I fail to act in kindness, that the next moment doesn't mean I, I can't act in kindness. Instead, I can repent of my sin, I can turn, and I can walk in that righteousness that is mine. And there's a reason for it. And there's a reason for it. And, and it's a reason that Simeon only knew in part, but today you and I know in full. And it's found here in the text. Notice how it goes on and it says these words about Simeon. Not only was he righteous, not only was he devout, but it says this. It says that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit was upon him. Church, that little phrase there is tremendous. See, Simeon only knew in part what you and I have in full. It says that the Holy Spirit was upon him. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. This isn't the only person already that has been mentioned as being filled or having the Holy Spirit upon him. Zechariah was mentioned in Luke 1, 6 and 7, or 67. It says, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, the same was true of Elizabeth in, in Luke 1, 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of mother, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been mentioned already numerous times throughout Luke's gospel as, as doing this work in believers' lives. And, and typically, when the Holy Spirit has shown up before Jesus Christ, the role of the Holy Spirit has been to come upon people to enable them to speak words for God, to be able to perform certain tasks for God. But there was a big difference between Simeon having the Holy Spirit upon him and today what you and I have. You know what the big difference was? In the Old Testament and before Christ, when the Holy Spirit came upon someone, it was only temporary. The Spirit resided on them in a temporary way. In fact, the prophets looked forward to the day God made a promise that one day, rather than the Holy Spirit coming and being on a person for a, for a certain period of time to do a specific task, God said, one day I'm gonna put my spirit inside of you. It's gonna fill you. It's gonna be inside of you. You will have my spirit with you always. That was something that they, listen, it's wrong to covet, but I guarantee they coveted in the Old Testament. The idea that God's spirit would be upon you. And when I say God's spirit, by the way, the Holy Spirit who is referenced here, man, he sometimes gets the short end of the stick. We're talking about God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So when it says that the Holy Spirit was upon him, God came upon Simeon. And when the Old Testament promises that one day the Spirit would, in, would indwell you, it's saying that God would indwell us. And, and so, so this is what Simeon has. He's, he's filled with the Spirit. We're going to see he was filled with the Spirit to make a proclamation, a testimony about Jesus. But that comes next week. But here's what I want to say. For you and for me, when we understand God's word, Jesus said while he was here on earth, that unlike Simeon and the Spirit coming upon him for a period and a time, the Spirit would not simply come upon us but the Spirit would indwell us. In fact, in John 16, 7 through 11, this is what's true of you and I today. Listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, 
He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because they go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So he's, so he's saying, I'm going to send my spirit and he's going to do a work. He's going to come upon you. He's going he's to bring to your mind the things that I have spoken to you while I am with you. He's going to convict you of your sin. He's going to draw you to myself. And guess what? He's never going to leave you. Never going to leave you. And so church, today, today, if you are in Jesus Christ, if you've put your faith and trust in him, do you know what we've already talked about? It means that you have met the standard of God because Jesus met that standard for you. It means today your sins are forgiven and so you go and you walk in obedience not to earn God's love and acceptance but because you are. And today we're looking at Simeon and we're being reminded that we have the spirit of God indwelling us. And that spirit, I'm not gonna have, have time to get through this. First Corinthians 12 tells us, fills us and gives us gifts that we can use to minister within the body. Philippians 1.19 tells us that the Spirit helps us with our prayers. Romans 8.26 and 27 says the Spirit, it helps us in our weakness. And so when we seek to obey, when we seek to work in righteousness, we have God indwelling us to, to help us. Today, when you leave this place, praise the Lord for the coming of Jesus Christ. It's not to be feared. It is to be remembered. It is to be celebrated because with it, we see the fulfillment of the promise of God. We see a righteousness that comes to us. We know that the Spirit comes upon us in a way that Simeon could only imagine but remains with us forever. Do you know this? Do you see this? This is the beauty of what we have because Christ came into the world. And then one final thing, and I'm gonna close with this. Notice in verse 26, there was something that the Holy Spirit did for Simeon. It had been revealed to him, that is Simeon, by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. All of that was the lead up, if you will. It was the lead up to this thing that this man had been selected by God, that God had come upon him in a way that we don't know exactly, but it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit in some way we don't know, that he would not see death until he had seen the promised Messiah. You heard Pastor Tony say to the kids, the last time a prophet had spoken in Israel was Malachi, and it was 400 years earlier. 400 years earlier, they'd been waiting for the fulfillment of this. Even longer than that, if we go all the way back to Abraham and, and beyond, they'd been waiting to see the Messiah and somehow God made it known to Simeon that he would live to see that Messiah. Now, because I, my brain goes to weird places, I just had to think about the boldness and confidence that would give me in life. Think about it. You're not gonna die until you see the Messiah. So you're like, all right, walking out in traffic. Here we go. Who's going to hit me now, right? You know? He's like, I want to be with him when we go into battle. You know? I'm going to eat whatever I want because I ain't dying until I see the Messiah. Is he like, I'm going to jump off buildings. Look at me, not going to die, right? Like, I mean, it's, it's a silly thing, but, but think about, think about, I, it makes me wonder was it spoken to him in such a way that he had such confidence that it would happen or did he have his moments of doubt? The text says that he was righteous and he was devout. It seems to me that he had an unshaken belief. But what did he have an unshaken belief in? 
The unshaken belief was that he would see the Lord's Christ. The Lord's Christ. That he would see the one that God had promised. Christ meaning the anointed one. Christ meaning the Messiah. The one that God had ordained would bring about the deliverance of his people. But it's in this statement that I want to close with something that should confront every single one of us today. God makes this promise. Simeon, you're going to see the Lord before you die, or I should say the Lord's Christ before you die. But here's what confronts us. Earlier in Luke's gospel, when the angels had come to the shepherds, they had said to the shepherds, for behold, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is, what? Christ the Lord. Now we come to this text and it says, Simeon, you're not going to die until you see the Lord's what? Christ. Let me say it one more time. I wonder if any of you have put it together yet. The shepherds heard the message that for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And now this text says that you're not going to die until you see the Lord's Christ. Why am I drawing your attention to it? Do you know who Jesus Christ is? He's God. You're going to see the Lord. And in that text, it's referring to Jesus. And then this text just says you're going to see the Lord's Christ. Which one is it? For anybody who comes and says that Jesus Christ was just a man, the text of the scriptures don't allow you to believe that. From his infancy and from his birth, he was confessed to be God come down. So you have to take him seriously. You have to take him so seriously because if you don't, you will never meet God's righteous standard. You will never be able to live the life you were meant to live. And you will not only live life alone because God won't be with you, but you will die alone. But praise be to God that Jesus Christ came. So none of that has to be true for us. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word, it's not about us. Just as today's scripture, it's not about Simeon, but instead how Simeon points to you and points to what you do. And what you do is you save and you redeem through your coming. You make us, Lord, what you had created us to be from the beginning. Lord, what Simeon only knew in part, we get to know in, in full because we don't guess at what it meant for Christ to come. We see it in its fullness. Even today, to know that we are those in whom your spirit dwells fully, permanently. Lord, there are some here in this room who are just, they're going through the motions of, of their life. Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes if they are in Christ to truly know the fullness of your presence because you dwell within them that there would be nothing in their life that they would excuse, that there would be no actions that they don't feel like they can take. Lord, because you go before them, you empower them for that. If there's any here today, Lord, who are under the burden of sins of the past, as we sang already, Lord, if we are in Jesus Christ, we have his perfect record. And so, Lord, we 
We say, would you come in and, and would you come into those frames and those seasons of our mind from the past where we see our failures and say, but Christ has covered it all. That's not who I am. I'm righteous in him. Lord, let us know the hope, the joy, the peace, and the love of Christ this season. And, and because of what Christ has done, Lord, let us be a people who don't keep it to ourselves. But Lord, let us, let us share it. Let us proclaim it. Let us, as we will sing on Christmas Eve, go and tell it on the mountains, first to our hearts and then to the world. God, you are good, you are great, and to you be all the glory through your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said, amen and amen.